All right, I got my notes. You got your. Are you, are you ready to do this? Yeah, I'm ready, ready to, to do okay. this. Ex- um, hey, isn't that a movie prop? How's that um, working? I thought so. Maybe Sarah plugged it in. All right. Well, you're closer. You, you, you All right, it's fine. Hello. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. D- don't call this number again. Uh, some guy who thinks he's Vladimir Putin is on the phone. Yeah, sure. Oh, no, he didn't hang up. Uh, um, no, it's Vladimir Putin. Yeah, his voice just got like five times scarier. Uh, okay. What? Do, what does he want? He's demanding that we hand over the nerd cave. No, no. You know what? No, he's got Crimea. He doesn't need the nerd cave. Why the heck does he want the nerd cave? According to him, there is a national treasure that's in our cave. A national treasure. Yes. Okay. Look, I, I know I'm somewhat desirable. It's but not I you, and it's not you. It's the Mel Gibson pin that Sarah bought. I'm sorry. Are you are you talking about this? The giant oversized button with a picture of Mel Gibson on it, circa maybe 1980, with half his shoulder missing. You do realize we're talking to a man who rides his horse bare chested. I don't care. You know what? He's not getting the button. Do you hear that? I don't care if it is Mel Gibson. He's not getting the button. Uh, I, I he's he's saying some not nice things. Uh, look, can we just give him the button? You know Please, what? It's, it, it costs like $3. No one despises Mel Gibson more than I. But it's not about Gibson. It's about principle. And no, he's got Crimea. He's not getting the button. Nope. <laughs> All right, look, Vlad, <laughs> buddy. Look, we, we want to help you out, but we got to get something else here. Like, what? what? <laughs> All right, he says we can keep the nerd cave if he gets yeah. the button. And a Nerf guns. And now he wants to disarm us. Give it, give me the phone. Give me the phone. Hey, no. You you know what? You can ride out of here shirtless on the horse you rode into, you jackass. Great. You do realize this is a man who could launch a complete thermonuclear strike against us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. But you know what? You know what we have that he doesn't? What? Shirts. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. It is a little bit warmer in the Nerd Cave this evening, isn't it? It's like summer has come early. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice for everyone except for my one, my one-month-old. Yeah. She was not happy today. So we just stripped her down, bared her a little diaper, and she's, she looks yeah. like Al Bundy. Well, I'm actually kind of jealous because you're, you're in shorts and a t-shirt. And, and you know, and like sandals, and, and I had to, yeah, I shirt. came dressed from work. I, I'm now I'm dressed in California business casual, which is a, a button-up shirt and really nice jeans. <laughs> so and dress socks, yeah, uh, because that's how I how I roll. Um, and it's, it's like 80 degrees in this room right now, so I'm not quite comfortable at all. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but not really. It is what it is. I I, I had the forethought. I'm sorry. You could have at least put the waters in the fridge. That's all I'm saying. No, 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 no. Room temperature keeps the mind alive and stirred up. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cold water is a shock to your system. We, we, we can't have that. Oh, no, no, of course we couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's good to hear that Amelia is doing well. Oh, yes. She is growing leaps and bounds. I'm debating whether or not I have a one-month-old or a butterball turkey. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, she's put on a little bit of weight already, hasn't she? <laughs> she has gained so fast. And she wasn't a small girl when she came out either. No, but... no, she's, what, like 10 pounds now? No, she's more than that. 
Really? Yeah, she's probably about 11 and a half. She's a big girl. I know. Three pounds in one month. That's... Yeah. She's healthy, though. She's yeah. very, very healthy. Good. Yep. Well, well, you know what else is healthy? Not just for you, not just for me, but for our listeners. A little bit of listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. All righty. Our first piece of listener feedback comes from Micah. Uh, and this one says, Shroud of Disappointment. Uh, hey there, nerds. Long-time listener, first-time commenter. Micah here from Boulder Creek, California. Hey, as they say, just down the coast from y'all. Uh, I was listening to the episode Brian and Roxy did with the Wheel of History and found a disturbing issue. The Shroud of Turin is no longer really a debate because of the evidence surrounding what Jesus would have actually looked like. New evidence from anthropologists and the like have re- reconstructed the face of a Jewish man living in the Levant at the turn of uh, the BCE-CE eras. I have included a link for your edification and suggest that a history of the changing face of Jesus and what it says about different societies could be an interesting episode idea. Love the show. Congratulations to the Brickmonts. Well, thank you very much, Micah. And keep up the awesome work. So let's address this real quick, because I do want to say... Before you guys recorded this episode, you and I were chatting for a little bit in the house, and I absolutely agree with Micah. I believe that the evidence has always been there. The, the, the fact that we know exactly where Jesus was born, the time frame in which it took place, more or less his ethnic background as characterized by his faith and religious beliefs, I think it is pretty obvious that he would have had the appearance of any other individual living in the region at the time. You, however, you, you have a little bit of a different opinion on it. Well, I mean, I've heard those theories, and I definitely am leaning toward that. But when I look at the face of the person that is on the shroud, there's not a whole lot of the phenotypes here that lead me away from Middle Eastern either. I mean, I it's very hard to say because, one, we, we don't see skin color on it. We have a couple of ideas for how long hair would have been for a man at his age and around this this time period. So we've got those factors to look at. But that being said, I think it's one of those things where we're never really going to ever know yeah. what Jesus really looked like. And yeah, it's very possible that the, the newer anthropological theories do drive another nail into the coffin of the theory of it, whether it's the actual shroud of, of Christ or not. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that's now pointing against it uh, at this point. There is still a tiny little bit of doubt in my mind because of the fact that there are certain facial features on there that I think are also indicative of someone from the Middle East. Yeah, and you know what? It's never 100%. Sure, there are some features that are very characteristic to certain people, depending on the region they live in, based on environmental differences that have happened over, you know, a population living there for thousands and thousands of years. Even still, you're going to have natural variation that's going to happen in any society so you know okay i I can see a little bit to that argument as well but at the same time in my opinion yeah i can't get past that i really i don't think the shroud of turin is and ever was near the actual jesus but like i told you and and as you mentioned in on the episode that it doesn't really matter does it any religious artifact right has its significance and its importance beyond whether or not it's 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 real quote unquote you know it's real to some people and if it's important to them, then so be it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, we have one more feedback from Tanya, uh, who writes, uh, Good morning. I'm a new listener to NOH and love it. Thank you very much. 
She says, I'm caught up on the last three months of podcasts and I'm now working my way back through your history, ironically enough. <laughs> I frequently hear shout outs to listening through iTunes. However, so far with the episodes that I've enjoyed, I've yet to hear you mention Stitcher. It's a great alternative for listening through Android phones and deserves some love too. Keep up the good work. By the way, I made a donation to, via PayPal last week. Do you read feedback from there as well? Fellow nerd, Tanya. Yes, we do actually. Let me pull up. She did give us a donation, didn't she? Which we thank very much. And just to clear the air, so to speak, uh, we we definitely love Stitcher. And we have mentioned it many times before on the show. I know you're still working through our back catalog. And I think we mentioned it probably more in the beginning when we were kind of establishing our our presence online. But uh, we love Stitcher. It's absolutely great for, for people who use Windows phones, Android devices, uh, and, and also just from the web too, you can you can make a Stitcher account online and mm-hmm. get them that way. Yeah, Stitcher's awesome. We love them. She did give us a quick little piece of feedback uh, when she donated about um, a couple, couple weeks ago. So sorry we didn't get to this sooner. Uh, she writes, "I just started listening to Nerds in History through the Stitcher app, and I love it. Of course, like she just said, I'm so glad that you present history in a fun, nerdy way. I'm working through your past episodes so far. Seven Wonders of the World, Ancient-ish Worlds are my favorites." Oh, Very cool. Excellent. Thank you. And thank me thank my Uncle Greg for being on the first episode uh, of that. Uh, please keep up the great work. I also think that Eric's return should be welcomed by with an entire month dedicated to Egypt. Huzzah. <laughs> Damn it. Why did we not read this earlier? That's a great idea. You know what? Screw the topic. I'm just going to talk about Egypt today. And I'm going to go check out, guys. I'll see you in about, <laughs> I'll see you in about three and a half weeks. I'm going to go to, um, let me go to Rio. Rio? Yeah. Right. You know, our buddy Lucas is over there right now. I think yeah. I can go visit him. It's not really carnival, but okay. If you, you know, whatever no, floats your boat. Whatever. It's, it's, the seasons are changing, so it's, <laughs> it's still a pleasant climate to yeah. be there. Um, okay. Well, hey, you know what? I, I, I don't know. I could talk about Egypt for an entire podcast if I really wanted to. You could talk, I don't about, know you we'll, could talk about Egypt for days, yeah, literally. Yeah. I, I don't know if we'll do a whole month, but uh, it's been a while since we've had an egypt theme episode. Maybe we should uh, plan one for the future. Uh, Tanya, I would encourage you, if you can, to go back and find Gilligan's Egypt Part 1 and Part 2. We did do a whole two-parter. And Eric versus the Mummy. And Eric versus the Mummy as well. And also, Emotep is a badass. Yeah, we've got a few. We've had a, almost a month's worth of, of Egypt Indeed, episodes already. Of, 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 we can't forget... Our crown jewel, our pride and joy, the mongoose equation. The mongoose, a very first episode. Right, where we talked about pyramids. Not exclusively Egypt, but it's, of course, featured prominently. Exactly. Yeah. Which really set the temp- template for how we do our show today. Yes, yes, indeed. And we mentioned, the only show I've seen where we, can men- we bring up Egypt, China, aliens, and Thor. <laughs> All in one. <laughs> and mounds. And mounds. Don't forget mounds. Incessantly. Oh, and then aliens. We established in the very first episode how much I hate the aliens from those movies. Right. It really is like a template for everything we've done since since then. That's Fascinating. good. That's the way it should be. Yeah. That's a good pilot, I think. There you go. All right. Well, shall we get into today's episode? Yeah, absolutely. Because our episode today is going to be a little different than what we've done in the past. And I think it's it's good. We're 81 episodes in now. And there's two things that we've more or less avoided in this podcast. One of them is having our political opinions kind of be vocal and out there. Yeah, we've tried to stay as neutral as we can. Yeah. We try to decide for the most on human rights more than anything. Absolutely. And take that and take the the partisan aspect out of it completely. Yeah. yeah. Because human rights shouldn't be partisan. (laughs) Exactly. It should be everyone's concern. Yeah. Uh, But we are going to bridge that slightly today. I think. And we're going to talk a little bit about some current events that are going on, something that we couldn't avoid, something that's been requested by more than one listener, and that is the the current situation in Crimea. 
Uh, in addition to that, we're also going to talk about warfare, which is something that we've kind of avoided because every other history podcast talks about the war of this and war of that and, and all war that. War is kind of pedestrian on a history podcast. Yeah, and we've we've avoided it for 80 or so episodes. We've talked about it briefly from time to time, but we've never really yeah. made it the subject yeah. of an episode. And then, to be fair, it is very hard to do a history podcast without at least mentioning a war, a war at some point yeah. or another. So, so you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to break with tradition, so to speak, and we're going to cover a couple of different things today. But I think you folks are going to like it because we're going to put our traditional Nerds on History spin on it as we normally do. Uh, that you folks so enjoy. Let's talk about yeah. Russia. What's going on in Russia? So, gosh, well... Of course, we, it had to happen when I'm on paternity leave, Of too. course, and it had to happen, like, you know, two or three weeks after <laughs> everyone from the Olympics uh, left. At least he waited. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly he was he was biding his time at this point. So, I mean, really, what, let's talk about what's happening in the Ukraine. The Ukraine is a yeah. former Soviet republic. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I have to say something really quick. Yeah. I caught myself listening to our episode from last week. I said Ukrainia mm-hmm. <laughs> at one point. We always make these little slips. I am so sorry, human race. I despise people who say, like, Canadia and what have you. Ukrainia. So, U- Ukrainia was my flub, and I'm pointing it out before we get it's into okay. the It's okay. I'll make sure my friend Yulia doesn't kill you because she's from the Ukraine. You mean uh, Ukrainia? Yeah. Yeah. And well, so the Ukraine was a Soviet Republic. So um, for, for a long time, Russian was spoken through the the entire country. Yeah. Keep in mind, uh, the southern portion of the country is Crimea, and Crimea has been Russian at one point. Yeah, the Crimean Peninsula kind of branches off. It's mostly it's surrounded been, by water. It's kind of gone back and forth. It's kind of like Alsace-Lorraine. <laughs> Man, everybody has had their hands yeah. in, in that cookie jar. And unfortunately, um, it looked like this was an opportunity for putin to seize the region because of their own political unrest i mean for those who don't already who may have already forgotten the ukrainian government ousted their president because their president declared powers that were unconstitutional and the people did not like that so there was lots of protests unfortunately some people died and some blood was shed but the president is now a man on the run at this point well yeah i mean essentially the ukraine has very much wanted to strengthen its ties with europe and Becoming part of the European Union was something that has been on the table for a very, very long time. Sure. Uh, something that was not going to be allowed to happen under that that political leadership. And so they decided to change their political leadership. Yeah. And their opposition has been active for a very long time. This is nothing new. Since the Ukraine was created, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it became its own independent republic, there have been... One side that has been very much pro-Russian, predominantly in the east, and in places like Crimea in the south, who have supported closer ties with Russia. And then there's been the majority of the Ukraine, which has always had a much closer tie to Europe throughout its history. Yeah. Uh, and so they decided it was time to change. And when their president wouldn't step down, they decided to take measures to, to oust him. And it was actually, while yes, there was bloodshed, compared to other political upheavals, this was actually pretty darn sick. No, no, this was not uncommon to what happened to Egypt a couple years ago. It yeah. was a, for lack of a better term, I use air quotes here, it was a peaceful, quote-unquote, revolution in the sense that there was not a, a battle waged, right? Yeah. There was protest and there was violence, but that's inevitable. There was violence in India as well, but yet they, they had a peaceful revolution yeah. as I mean, well. Of course, we, we have to acknowledge that the revolution is still going on, really, yes. in Egypt, and it, it hasn't died down. In fact, it's... If anything, the more violence has happened now in the wake of it than it happened in the actual revolution. But I understand your point. Yes. So anyway, that's in, in a way that's actually kind of a step forward for the human race. Yeah. That governments can be overthrown 
uh, without massive loss of life. But where we have a step back is we have the willful and intentional breaking of international law. And, you know, I, I know there are a lot of folks in Russia who are in support of Crimea becoming a part of Russia. And you know, a lot what? of people in Crimea who also support, yeah, who them want to becoming, be a part of Russia, yeah, because culturally they've felt the connection with them for a long sure. time. And yeah. you know what? I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. But just you're saying it should be done legally. Exactly. I have a problem with people breaking international law. And you know what? Putin has been throwing around his power for a very long time. You know, he trades places with Medvedev all the time, right? The right. two of them switch spots back and forth between, between prime minister, prime minister and, president. and president. Yeah. And. Uh, it's no surprise that there's so many outspoken people against that kind of behavior in Russia. Yeah. And Basically, it, it, he's behaving like an autocrat without the communist mm-hmm. uh, ideology to, to yeah. go with it. And yes, Crimea is very strategically important to Russia because their only real connection to the Black Sea, their their biggest you know naval base in that area is located in Crimea, which they've been renting from Crimea. Yeah. And Crimea does, or I should say did, have semi-autonomous uh, powers. It was written into the Ukrainian constitution that Crimea would more or less handle its own internal affairs, but situations of a larger scope that affect Ukraine as a whole were still governed by the Ukrainian president. And so... Sounds kind of federal, almost. Yeah, they they don't have the right to break away on their own, even though that's something that they can do if they want to, if they want to do it really honestly, legally. Where were the protests in Crimea? You know, where where was the uprising in Crimea. There really wasn't one. Here was a Russian-backed president who was ousted, kicked out, went to Russia, went to Putin, said, hey, if you're going to make your move, make it now. This is going to be your strongest opportunity. You will be supported in Crimea. I will help you out. I will go to Crimea, or I will at least state my intention to want to be there, to want to be a part of Crimea. And uh, that's precisely what happened. And Nobody knows exactly how to classify this, because I'm sorry, but the rest of the world is being a little bit wimpy about this situation. America and Europe rely on Russia, particularly for oil. And has always been the case uh, since the Industrial Revolution, Russia has always been a rich source of oil. And Europe is less likely to, to really be serious about this situation because they don't want their oil cut off from them. So... America and the European Union are looking at alternatives. How else can they bring oil into those countries that rely on it, including Ukraine, so that they can uh, be able to break away more? And I don't think anyone has a solution. Yeah, when you have a a precious resource that the world needs, um, that unfortunately gives you an unfair advantage of power uh, over a situation. Um, Even the United States, with all of its economic and military power, we're, we're not making much of our own oil anymore. We're still yeah. outsourcing a lot of it from Russia and the Middle East. Importing. Import, thank you. Well, outsourcing. So, yeah, yeah we're okay. outsourcing our, our energy quite a bit. One of the biggest reasons why I'm pro-clean ener- energy. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> yeah. if we're going to go political, we might yeah. as well go all the way here, right? <laughs> Let's yeah. get rid of our dependency like, on oil. You're like, we loved your show and we realized you were a bunch of leftist hippies. <laughs> uh, we're not, we are not hippies. I'm actually much more of a moderate. Um, politically, I just happen to I tend to lean on the, to the left on human rights issues quite a bit. I, I try not to align politically if I can help it. I'll sign up for a party when it comes time to voting, but I consider myself a human. That that's the party that I belong to, and in this case, I think it's just rotten what Putin's doing. And in addition to that, you know, there's this whole situation that's co- going on in Syria, right? One of the many ripples that's being felt from the so-called Arab Spring, and the Syrian regime 
has been receiving weapons from Russia. And Russia said, okay, we'll stop. We'll stop doing this. This was months ago, back when relations were a little less chilly. And now they've started up again. Why? Yeah. Because America said, okay, we're going to shut out access to some of your banks and we're going to make some of your most wealthy and richest people slightly uncomfortable by issuing more or less meaningless sanctions against Russia as a result of all this. With a promise of potentially more rough, stern sanctions once we figure out, you know, how to not be dependent on your oil. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a rotten situation all around. It, yeah, it is. Um, and yet we don't like the idea of a man going into another country and claiming land for himself because we saw what that looked like 70 years ago and we are scared to death of that happening again. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, I, I think Putin has had many political and moral shortcomings. I don't think he's anywhere close to Adolf Hitler uh, as far as uh, his tactics. Um, but that being said, when you see a, a pattern form, you, you don't want to take a chance. Yeah. Right. So I can understand why the western part of the of the world as far as europe and the united states are concerned uh, pretty much all the, all the nato countries really sure. um are are very concerned uh and i you know before somebody makes the comment i'm just going to get it out there iraq there's a lot of folks particularly in russia who are saying how dare america pass judgment when we invaded iraq two totally different situations completely different situations do i agree with the invasion of iraq me no. personally no i don't i think it was a really dumb idea i agree with keeping our soldiers who are meant to be defending america safe and alive and i don't believe in putting them into dangerous situations that they don't need to be in afghanistan totally different situation i support involvement in afghanistan and and all and what have you iraq no point no weapons of mass destruction no nothing it was pointless. It really was. And I think a lot of veterans who who served in Iraq and served faithfully in Iraq and, and did their tour of duty and, and risked their lives, you know, I think that they would agree with that. I know that there are some who who want there to be a meaning and a reason for them to be there. And I think that each of them have their own story and each of them did something that gave them a meaning to being there. But as a whole, overall, I think it was a terrible decision and it was pointless. So I'm throwing that out there. Yes, it's a little hypocritical in a sense, but you know what? This is a different administration. It's a very different administration. Thank you. Yes. and This is the president who, despite his controversy with drone warfare, ended the war uh, in Iraq and ended our dominance. At least dominant, ended American involvement in Iraq. Yeah, and, and, and ended a large part of our dominance in, in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. So I just want to address it now because I know... I just know it's going to come up in some listener feedback. And it's worth mentioning. It yeah. really is. And but why are we talking about all this? Yeah, so I guess the point is we we could spend <laughs> we could spend an episode talking about the history of Russia or history of Crimea. But uh, not like they mentioned in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, uh, the history of Russia is so complex and diverse that one episode alone could not do it justice. Yeah, it's... Uh, and it's worth mentioning, it's an amazing country. Yes. We, 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 are, we are not anti-Russian in any way, shape, or form. I'm not a particular fan of Vladimir Putin, but I think Russian culture, the Russian people, the Russian language, Russian history, all amazing. Yeah, it's, it's very different to be, an, to be against a political government and be against a culture. And we are not against the Russian culture yeah. in any way. And it's worth stating and getting it out yeah. there. Governments are futile, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, as we've seen through history. They are footnotes in a, in a never-ending book. Isn't the average American, can they name most of our presidents now? 
not really. Should they? Probably, because it's, it's important to know who's, <laughs> who's led our country in the past. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is, I think the mind values cultural customs much more. Yeah. Than those kind of things. So, so uh, one day in the future, I think we should absolutely do a few episodes on Russia. I think it'd exactly. be fantastic. But we're not going to do that today. We're going to do something different. No, what we did, but what did get us interested is since we're basically talking about uh, an invasion, uh, we wanted to talk about some other times in history where invasions have taken place and failed (laughs) completely. That was inspired by uh, what has been going on in Crimea. Yeah, and I and I laugh not because I I find that the destruction of human life that we're going to talk about for the next you know forty five minutes to be entertaining at all. I laugh because. I don't think what's happening in Crimea is going to end up like how Putin wants it. I think his invasion of Crimea has succeeded in a way, but I think that's about as far as it's going to get. I think anything further is going to be asking for disaster, and he could lose everything that he's been able to take so far. And we have seen that throughout history. We have examples of it that we're going to share with you today. All right. So, obviously, we're talking about Russia. Let's, let's segue into a topic that at least partially includes Russia. And this is actually a very recent event. Uh, we're talking about the, the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Mm. And this is something that very nearly destroyed the presidency of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, it is something that was put into place by Eisenhower before him, that he inherited, that he took on, and I think took as an opportunity to try to prove himself as... Uh, Commander-in-Chief. Act- yeah, yeah. Commander-in-Chief, an active president, not just this this young you know, Catholic who was coming into to the presidency who had a, a lot of skepticism by some folks. Yeah, I mean, JFK had already been at this point the youngest the youngest man elected president. Yeah. Mind you, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the youngest man to become president because he was 42 right. when McKinley was assassinated, but uh, Kennedy was 45 when he was elected. But Teddy Roosevelt doesn't count because he's always looked like he's 70 so <laughs> he only lived to be like 60 60 years old or so yeah he had a very long and hardy life yeah um and he was also the first catholic which had raised lots of concerns because up to that point all of the presidents before him had been protestant and mostly because of the catholic belief that the pope believes that he has the right to to advise catholic heads of state on yeah. political matters and jfk was the first guy to come out and say um no if the Pope were to do that, I would say, I respect your opinion, but this is, you're, you're talking to me in a manner that's inappropriate. You know, he very firmly believed in the separation of church and state. And thankfully, the Catholic Church has uh, caught up to that. And they have tried to speak more on moral, social issues and less about political yeah. issues. I mean, of course, you know, the Pope was opposed to the war in Iraq as well, as were mo- many people. Um, so there are some exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, the Catholic Church stays out of those affairs. Nevertheless, Kennedy was already himself kind of a, a hot button issue because he was a totally new territory for the American people. And like you said, he was trying to, to make a name for himself. Sure. He just went about doing it the absolute ass and wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let, let's just be honest about it. You know, the relations between America and Cuba have been long and interesting. Obviously, Cuba for a long time was considered the crown jewel of the Spanish Empire. It was a place of wealth. It was a place where slave trading was going on. It was a place where there was a huge exchange of capital and, and made a lot of people very, very rich and a lot of people very, very poor. And that mindset, that tradition, if you will, continued for a very long time, even after the end of Spanish colonialism in the area. Right. And when that happened, 
there were a lot of things that were going on in the Caribbean, in in Central and South America as a result. A lot of effect, cause and effect kind of situations. Many of them resulted in kind of autocrats, powerful military leaders, yeah. people taking over and taking con- control and command. Yeah. I mean, heck, when we explored our two-parter on the history of Mexico, we saw yeah. that firsthand. And let's not forget the whole reason why Cuba was no longer part of Spain was because of us. Yeah. Right? We had won... I hate to say it, we had won Cuba in the in the Spanish-American War, as well as uh, the Philippines and Guam, and we ended up giving Cuba you know, sure. its own independence. Well, in, in a way. In a way, uh, There yeah. were three wars of independence before America got involved. We were the final uh, straw to break the camel's back, if you will. In fact, that, that final war of independence ended just as we began the Spanish-American War in 1898, if I remember correctly. And we totally did it with a with an interest in in Cuba, and America immediately latched on. We loved Cuba. It was a place rich in sugarcane, uh, in tobacco, and all these wonderful resources that we could import into America. And it was a place where we were going to set up shop. And many many wealthy Americans started moving into Cuba and doing exactly that, uh, including many famous oil refineries like Shell. So we have the situation in Cuba for over 50 years of an American industrial occupation, if you will. Over 60, I believe, to 70% of Cuban companies were actually owned by Americans at this time. And the wealthy became very wealthy, and the poor stayed very, very poor. And as you can imagine, this stirred up a lot of dissidents, people who wanted to change that, people who wanted more equality. And after the military takeover in 1952 of Batista's regime, who came on in and cemented his power and more or less said things are going to stay this way and are never going to change, it outraged the Cuban people. It outraged certain people like Fidel Castro, yeah, who formed you know, rebellion groups, guerrilla warriors, to go in there and take out Batista. Somebody who America, well, yes, he was, it was a military coup and he came into power illegally, uh, went ahead and supported because he liked America. He wanted to keep American interest in Cuba because it kept him rich. When Batista was forced to leave the country, guess how much he had in his pocket? How much? $300 million. $300 million, $1959. That's an absurd amount of money. Was it a check that he had been given? Because how do you fit that in your pants? I'm just wondering. Hey... <laughs> If you, uh, he, almost, I'm, I'm sure he had assets in America okay. that he had it stored over here in, in some portion or three hundred million in fifty nine in nineteen fifty nine. That's that's got to be in the billions. Oh yeah, he was extremely wealthy, and uh, it's no big surprise how much people really despised him. And not only that, but they also saw American involvement in the country as being part of the problem. Absolutely, it was their rulers who are perpetuating this. Well, can we be really honest here? Have we ever been in a situation where we've gotten involved in another country and it's been good for the other for the people involved? Uh, no. yeah. I, I would say the Philippines is actually a really good example of that. Okay. Uh, especially after the Second World War. I, I'd say there's, I'd say there's absolutely situations where American involvement But they're in the minority. Has been, okay, sure. Yeah. There's, the problem is after 1945 when America became a, a world superpower, something that it really hadn't flexed its muscles too much with before. Yeah. It ran with it. And it ran with it because of people like Truman and because of people like Eisenhower who went ahead and were testing American limits. I mean, yeah, my well, God. We, well, we also kind of had to, right? Because we were worried about what was going on in the USSR. 
oh, that is a whole other episode I could yeah. talk about. Because I think if F- FDR had lived longer to see at least the end of the war, we would have a very different relationship with Russia right now. So much of this this hatred towards Russia and communism was something that FDR was working really, really hard to deconstruct. He wanted better relations with Stalin and the Soviet Union. He wanted a stronger bond. And he thought that as a result of helping to defeat Hitler, the, the two powers being able to work together, and eventually Russia's involvement with Japan, that that would be enough to, to start bridging those those gaps. And what does Truman do? Truman comes in and screws it up. Is it any big surprise that he is the lowest rated president in popularity in U.S. history? Even lower than George W. Bush? Yeah, wow. Truman Even lower than Bush. James Buchanan? Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Truman... Um, did so much to damage American and U.S. relations. And Churchill didn't help either. We're going to talk a little bit about Churchill when we talk about uh, my next topic that I'll bring to the yeah, table. This, is, so the first, this is the first Churchill government that you're referring to, not this. Actually, pre-government. This is when he was Lord of the Admiralty. Okay. Yeah. But um, I, I, Sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. What I'm saying is that we had set up a situation in, in, in Cuba where any new government that was going to come on in was going to be looking very closely at America and deciding how its further involvement was going to be. And Castro, despite being brought to America, meeting with leaders here in the United States, meeting with members of the CIA before he actually took over, because they were giving him intel. And they were giving him intel on communists in Cuba, hoping that he would actually kind of turn more towards the Americans and rat out the Cubans <laughs> or the communists. And what does he do? He, he's a turncoat. He switches sides. He's He's totally willing to take advice on on the the communists only to later join up with them essentially uh because he was part of a country that was being kept down you know capitalism communism whatever it is throw it out the window for a minute and just think a little bit about marxism right and some of the messages that it delivers whether you agree with it all or not just think about some of the messages and one of those is the elimination of the upper class and the creation of a permanent middle class, right? Equality for everybody. Government more or less owns the land and distributes it evenly so that no one person is kind of left out. Whether you agree with it or not, that's what it is, and that's what these people wanted. So when Castro comes to power, he immediately begins turning against American interests and becomes far less uh, involved with American companies to the point where he actually nationalizes the vast majority of the petroleum companies in Cuba because they would not refine petroleum that was being sent to him from the Soviet Union. So he just took over those companies. And eventually he took over all American interests in Cuba. And he took them over by force, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, they let him take them over because they weren't going to be locked up in prison. So yeah, they left, along with many other exiles to America. Most of them were wealthy Cubans, were people who, who worked with you know American companies, had a lot of money, didn't see a place for themselves there or were part of Batista's inner circle and ended up fleeing and and leaving to Miami and building a very strong infrastructure of, you know, commerce in Miami that still exists today, largely due to wealthy uh, Cuban immigrants. So now you have this situation where America's getting very agitated. Eisenhower has now decreed uh, on the 17th of March, 1960, that we can take over Cuba. We can oust Fidel Castro. There were plans to have him poisoned. There were plans to have him shot. There were all sorts of ideas that were created, but they knew that eventually people would have to land 
you know, on Cuban soil to be able to completely take it over. And they were very, very delusional um, because the CIA kept whispering into Eisenhower's ear, oh, the people will absolutely support, you know, they loved America and all the wealth that it brought and all the tourists that it brought to Cuba. No, 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 no. The people will rise up and get rid of Castro. Trust us, trust us. As a result of the Freedom of Information Act in 1998, a lot of information has come out in regards to this whole Bay of Pigs fiasco, and a lot of it involves CIA intelligence reports that are the exact contrary to what the CIA was telling Eisenhower. They were lying to him, and they were lying to Kennedy. And they did it for their own personal interests that they had in Cuba. Look at the CIA in, in, in Guatemala, you know, seven years earlier, when they had supported the coup and overthrown the, the, the government there. They had an interest now in Central America, and they were definitely going to be keeping the communists out, and Castro had to go. So, eventually, you know, Eisenhower is going to start breaking off diplomatic ties with Cuba, which he did in 1961. This is after he started, you know, nationalizing all these American companies. So this is the transition period between the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations. because uh, Kennedy would come on in, and he would actually, one of his first acts as president, uh, would approve the plans and details for the invasion of Cuba. Whereas Eisenhower had approved a $13 million budget to make it happen, it was Kennedy who approved the final plan. And they had a great plan initially, until that was all buggered up. Uh, They were going to land in a much safer location, closer to the supporters that they already had in Cuba. But they ended up landing somewhere else that was further away from a military installation, right? So they figured, okay, reinforcements can't come sooner, so okay, whatever, We'll, we'll just go with that. It turned out to not be such a great idea because America had taken a bunch of these Cuban uh, exiles, many of which who had volunteered, right? Some were approached, some were drafted in a sense, not drafted and they were forced, but they were approached, uh, about 1,400 of them, and created a brigade that would invade Cuba. And they were given special training that lasted for several months. They were given excellent weapons, tanks, planes, bombers uh, that would actually be flown out of Nicaragua. And they were totally by American design, but they were painted to look Cuban. And the story was going to be that these Cuban airmen had defected and had bombed the rest of the Cuban Air Force in retaliation and then landed in Miami. Or landed in Florida, I should say, not Miami. That was the the trick that was going to be presented. To the point where they actually intentionally damaged one non-crucial part of one of the planes to make it look like they were being shot at. When in reality, this was uh, an unprovoked attack, in a sense. We went over, we bombed a good chunk of Castro's Air Force, but not all of it. We missed some planes that were hidden. Only about five or six, half a dozen planes. But it was enough. And we thought we had gotten rid of most of them. And the next day, on April 17th, we were all ready to go. We had all these Cuban exiles loaded up on ships. They landed in the Bay of Pigs. Uh, The Russians actually kind of knew... What was going on and kind of tipped off the Cubans, but even still, their their forces that were there, about 200 Cuban soldiers in the bay, were surprised and ambushed. Initially, it seemed like things were going really well, but then reinforcements came in almost immediately and, and stalled up everything. And the few surviving Cuban planes that were left were enough to decimate all of the supplies, all the ships that had dropped them off. And America, who was still claiming that they had no involvement in it, refused to go in and evacuate those folks. So about 200 of them died in fighting. About an equal number of Cubans died as a result of the bombing and of the resistance that they they fought. And those soldiers fought bravely. I'll give them that. 
They held off against the Cubans for three days. Even though they had the superior weaponry, they didn't have the supplies they needed. The few airplanes that they had left that they were using to help counterbomb and, and protect their fighters, or they didn't have fighters, they seemed to protect the other bombers, had nowhere to really refuel. So even though they took a landing strip, there was nothing to do with it. And about 1,100 of them were captured. Some were wow. executed. Uh, many were interrogated publicly on television. And Castro's regime was against physical torture. I will give them that. Absolutely against physical torture because of uh, Batista's use of it. They decided to be against that. But they were not uh, against psychological torture. You know, and it resulted in, in the execution and sentencing of some of these individuals as, as traitors. But uh, Castro was no fool. Still isn't. Very intelligent person. He went ahead and decided to barter with Kennedy. And he said, you give me about $25 million worth of tractors and heavy equipment, and I'll give you back your Cuban exiles. And Kennedy, you know, hemmed and hawed about it, and there was a bit of debate. And eventually they settled on, on a cash value of about twice as much as what the equipment was worth. But that's how they got the, the rest of the Cuban exiles back. And it's a sad story, because I feel bad for these people who really believed that they could go to Cuba and take it back. But the people didn't want to leave. They wanted Castro. And as a result of the failure of the Bay of Pigs, it drew Castro and his people closer together. And even though Castro had refused to give up power, still hasn't, he just gave it over to his brother Raul, well, free speech is something that is not exactly free in Cuba. And, you know, there's a myriad of other issues that go on like any other nation has. Cuba's really not all that bad off. Yeah. They really aren't. And they could have been a much closer ally to America if things were handled a little bit differently. Of course, all of this led into the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, again, whole other episode in of itself. Yeah. But, yeah, unfortunately, we were so staunchly anti-communist at this point that it was it was an all-nothing scenario. We could, yep. they were, if they were communists, they were our enemy. And because Truman had established that as the norm and Iron Eisenhower had reinforced it, Kennedy pretty much had no choice but to go along with it. Yeah. I will say, though, he redeemed himself. And he did redeem himself with the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was an incredible act of diplomacy. Not entirely Kennedy, of course. <laughs> we have a lot of other people to thank for that. Yeah. Uh, on both sides of that Iron Curtain. But definitely redeemed himself. Well, speaking of uh, former Spanish territories, uh, why don't we talk about one of the, probably one of the greatest military blunders in history, uh, which is the Spanish Armada. Oh, boy. Yes, which took place in the, the year 1588. So promising. So promising. Well, so let's, let's, you did a great job of painting the picture. So let's, let's paint the backdrop, shall we? So by this point in time, Queen Elizabeth I has been on the throne for 30 years and has uh, managed to, not, not entirely her fault, but um, mostly because of her father, um, has managed to anger a lot of Europe at this point. Uh, for nothing else other than she, her being Protestant. Uh, we have to remember, at this point in time, the Pope wielded a tremendous amount of power. And this was 16... Um... This is... The, by this point in time, uh, by the time of the actual Armada attack was 15, I think, 80... Thank you. I think 1588 is... is yeah, the, a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The official... Any any wars that may have taken place between the Anglo-Spanish wars um, ended officially in 1604, when they were... Philip II officially just gave up <laughs> trying to... Gotcha. Um, but let's let's take a step back further before that. Why is that even a big deal? Why why did Philip II care? Was it just that she was Catholic? No, that's that's a huge part of it. Uh, and he felt charged with this uh, this heretic. He felt you know restoring the England English throne back to its Catholic roots because you now Henry VIII was the first Protestant monarch ever. Yeah. So keep in mind that 
just after Henry VIII had died and Edward VII, you know, didn't last very long either. Uh, or maybe not Edward VII. One of the, one of the Edwards. There's so many. Didn't last very long. Mary I was Catholic. She was born before uh, Henry changed religions. Philip II was co-monarch of England at this point. And then, you know, unfortunately, Bloody Mary, as she was known, um, died uh, of, uh, of a hemorrhage. I believe they found out that she, she thought she was with child, and it turns out she was actually dealing with a, a life-threatening illness. Hmm. Terrible woman. Yeah. Fantastic drink maker, though. Yeah. Uh, she showed as much ruthlessness toward Protestants that her father showed toward Catholics. So, uh, unfortunately, she earned the title Bloody Mary. And Elizabeth was trying to mellow things out. You know, she was Anglican. She was all for maintaining the Church of England. But then she was actually the first person to change the English prayer book to English. It was still Latin. The Church of England was essentially a clone of Catholicism at this point yeah. in time. Um, and Just she, with the right to divorce. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much that was, the, that was the, the only main difference. And she was the one who said, okay, well, let the Catholics keep their religion and let them be okay with that. I'm not, I'm not going to persecute any Catholics, but let's let us do our own thing, too. Let's try to live in peace. Unfortunately, Philip didn't like that. Philip believed that she was a bastard, mostly because that Henry VIII had declared her a bastard, declared her an illegitimate uh, child, uh, until he recanted that statement, statement later on in life. The actual use of the word bastard, not not that he was like you bastard. No, in the sense that she was illegitimate. Yeah. Yes, that yeah. she was uh, that she was not born within wedlock, but when she totally was, he was legitimately. <laughs> he said she totally was. <laughs> yeah, Anne Boleyn was his wife when Elizabeth was conceived. It happened. It was legal. It was it was a legal play because he wanted to have a son as his heir. He didn't want a daughter to, you know, no, sexist pig. Anyway, case in point, the fact that she was a woman, not that big of a deal, but because she was a Protestant, that was the driving force. Um, and it was also why, uh, for a long point in time, Philip had also supported Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, who is Elizabeth's cousin, from taking over the, the crown, because she technically would have been the, the next heir involved uh, and she had been the queen of france at one point or another so it's kind of funny how many like uh, these royals these european royals are just kind of like <laughs> they're like <laughs> hopscotch yeah, yeah they're hopscotch between different crowns of different countries and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were you know catholic and you know not because of the religion so much it's just that, that was the, that bond that united a lot of them mary queen of scots did try to usurp the crown and uh, was executed under elizabeth's reign which was kind of the final insult to Philip II. So he said, well, if we couldn't oust Elizabeth by political intrigue and make and put another Catholic on the throne, then I'm going to take England by force and I'm going to put my daughter, Isabella, who was only a child at this point, uh, on the throne and make her the Queen of England. That sounds like a great yeah. idea. I think Philip had his own problems. He <laughs> um, he was more concerned with, with increasing Spain's power. And Spain, by, by the way, at this point, was the most powerful country in the world. It had a, a, a tremendously powerful navy. Absolutely. It had a, expanded into the new world and amassed tons of wealth, mm-hmm. unfortunately, by pillaging the Mesoamerican cultures. But um, nevertheless, he had the wealth and the power. And he had amassed a fleet of thir- 130 ships that was going to try to take the English Channel. Which is massive. Very massive. And the queen, in total badassery uh, of herself, she decided she was not going to sit in her palace and to wait for news. She put on armor and she rode to the countryside and she gave a stirring speech to the soldiers to fight on. And uh, you know, basically said, this is your country too and we're going to fight and we're going to keep this country safe. And as luck would have it, 
the weather was also on their side <laughs> uh, because uh, the weather was just, it was a really, really bad water. And uh, thankfully, because of the, the shape of the English Channel, uh, it was very hard for all these ships to kind of get in, especially when there was fewer, but nevertheless, I think somewhere around, I, I want to say 50, maybe even more, I'm making the number wrong, of English ships that were kind of ready to fight them off. Through clever naval tactics, not one single English ship was sunk in this battle. Hey, it's their channel. They know yeah. in and out. They know it's unpredictability. Yeah, and by clever use of firepower, literally just of gun warfare, by guns I mean cannons, of course, they sunk quite a few ships. Um, in fact, only about half of the 130 ships made it back to Spain. Wow. Yeah. Of the ones that left, about 30 of them shipwrecked in Ireland and Scotland because the storm was so bad yeah so uh, which of which you know a lot of people will now will take well that's where black irish comes from uh which really is it's not even spanish it's really arabic right because the reason why the spaniards have the darker color hair right. is because of the <laughs> the muslim conquest that took like the islamic spain that took place in the 400 years prior to that i think right or, sure or not uh, or, 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 200 years prior to that yeah 200 years prior to that so because of that you know interaction that took place uh, you now started having Irish people and Scottish people that had darker features, mm -hmm. right? So, including we, my family, yeah, exa yeah my, sure. The Irish side of my family are all, yeah. all have dark colored eyes and and very dark hair. Yeah, exactly. Kind of an olive skin. Totally, totally. Which kind of makes big begs the question: Were the Irish albino? Because they, <laughs> at one point, because seriously, because the Red Irish are from the interaction with the Vikings, and the Black Irish are from the interaction with the Spanish. So, what were the Irish looking like beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just I, I, I'm genuinely curious at this point. I, I think perhaps they were so pale they were they were transparent. It's and, possible, and thus nobody knows That's because right. they could not be secret seen. history of the Irish. They were all invisible. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> which is which is why the Romans couldn't take them. Anyway, um, I, I digress. I mean, it really. I think. Thankfully, Elizabeth, it was a stroke of luck more than anything. And yeah, yeah, she had a very clever tactic. By the way, I forgot to mention who one of the people leading this was uh, Francis Drake, uh, who was um, a privateer, which is a nice way of saying a legal pirate. Mm -hmm. um, he and a bunch of... Uh, and I also have to bring in another part of this, too. I, sh I forgot to say this, too. Philip was pretty pissed off. And he was pissed off not just at Elizabeth's usurping of... What he believed was usurping of the rightful crown of, of england but also the fact that a lot of english and dutch privateers were stealing spanish treasure yeah. um and amassing wealth under the english crown and under the dutch republic at this point and he was getting tired of it so um <laughs> ironically francis drake was one of the people who led the the revolt against his invasion and succeeded we have to do a whole episode on francis drake i did a report on him fun. in fourth grade francis drake oh you prepared then you're oh, gonna go dude, francis drake is my favorite pirate Absolutely, yeah. Though, of course, he was a, a knight of the realm under England, so he was never considered a pirate in England, but the Spaniards hated him. In fact, they called him El Drake. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's, That's that, pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, he was he was a scourge, yeah. Um, I want to be known as El Brique. El Brique, El Brique Muente. El Brique Manto. That'd be cool. Sorry, yeah, go there ahead. there you go. Sorry. <laughs> That's kind of all I've got. That's I think I've kind of said the long and the short of it. Yeah, I mean, when you when you think about it, the 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 resources required to gather that many ships together is huge. Absolutely. Wait, what's do? You, oh, it's the vortex. Oh, oh, get down! Oh, okay, that's different. We've never had a spear. Almost broke the computer through. screen. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. You you okay? 
I'm fine. Hey, I was I, about to say this is getting kind of old, but Jesus, this is new. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a there's a letter on there. Can you can you hand that to me? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's from Tilly. Oh, that Joker. Je- Jennifer Tilly? No, 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 no. Um, Attila, Attila the I call him Tilly. Oh. Uh, old friend. We we play bridge on on Thursdays. I use the Cardis. I mean, it's always Thursday to him. I, I just do whatever I want. I just make Supposed sure you know, I be using it. For I bookmark it. Hey, you know what? I, I'm getting a, a, a wonderful insight into history. There are so many unanswered questions about Attila the Hun that I know uh, that I never plan to share with anybody. But yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, can you look, tell can you tell me where he learned his manners from? Because throwing a spear into a, someone's room is not okay. Well, it's not like he can text message me. Exactly. Well, exactly. It's anyway. so ridiculous. It actually makes sense. <laughs> uh, he, you know, he just wanted to let our listeners know that he loves the show. Uh, he he listens through the vortex. I, I stream it to him, uh, and uh, he wants people to, to sign up on Audible dot com that they can go to one of our our postings for one of our episodes. Look over to the right hand side and click right on that Audible link, and sure enough, uh, you can sign up and. Get a free trial, 30 days. You can listen to a couple of books, whichever books you want to listen to. You can find books on Attila the Hun. You can find books on Cuba. You can find books on just about anything. And uh, and listen to them. Because you know what? Sometimes your eyes are tired. Yeah, but you're right. driving, and you shouldn't be reading while you're driving. And you know what? If you like listening to podcasts, you probably like listening to audiobooks. Exactly. Yeah, and you know how this helps us? If you click on that audible.com link that's under army.com, even if you sign up for the free trial, we get a nice little commission. So <laughs> You know what? At the end, this is cute. I like this. If you don't sign up, I will burn down your village and kill you. <laughs> he's so funny. He's always like this. You know, he's so misunderstood, though. You know, being one of the leading chinchilla farmers in, in Europe at that time. What? Uh, yeah, no, no. He's all for soft, cuddly, cute things, you know? Yeah. How do you think he gets the fur for his hats? It's just, it's so charming. A- anyhow. Wow. Great guy. Very, very misunderstood. Could you throw the spear back, though? Because, um, you know, I don't want to be without one, just in case. Oh, you think that's his only one? I don't know. It looks nice. It's very ornate. Just throw it back. Fine. No room for it anyway. I'm sorry. I threw it with my left arm. I... You know what? Let's let's just get on with the episode, shall yeah. we? Yeah. Uh, speaking of spears, uh, let's talk about Gallipoli. <laughs> I'm sorry. Too, I don't have a too, segue planned for this one. Uh, touche. <laughs> <laughs> we have a segue planned for everything. I don't have one for this. Actually, I lie. I do have a segue for this. Okay. We're talking about Spain. We're talking about an enormous naval fleet brought on in to more or less single-handedly win the battle. Not the greatest idea, and it's one that would be repeated again, uh, albeit quite a few years later. And we're talking now about Gallipoli, which is... Uh, probably the <laughs> the single greatest blunder of the First World War. The war that I think gets overshadowed, that doesn't get talked about very often. But you know what, listeners? It's 100th year anniversary is coming up soon. And I know that we're kind of talking about warfare this time, which is a little unusual for us. We don't usually talk about it. But uh, we've decided uh, that we were going to bring you later in the year uh, a whole episode, a whole, probably a two-parter, about the First World War. We thought mm-hmm. it was worth it, because this is such a momentous occasion, and it is a war that is oftentimes overlooked, even though it was considered to be the Great War, the war to end all wars, because nothing so horrendous had ever been seen on Earth before. Kind of. Kind of. Yes. 
there, there, there truly was by that point nothing that was as expansive and as tr- and as horrific. Sure, the Second World War would blow that out of the water. Of course, but, but before that, there was also the Hundred Years' War, as well. But we'll we'll talk about that later. Later, there was that's the prequel. That's the episode one. Yeah, to, to the New Hope. <laughs> that would have been. The... Wow, <laughs> that was awesome. Well done, my friend. You're welcome. Well done. Reminding people why this is Nerds on History. Exactly. Uh, Anyhow, I guess if the Hundred Year War is the Phantom Menace and New Hope is World War I, uh, Gallipoli's that deleted scene with Jabba the Hutt in the hangar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. This was a bad, bad part. Okay. Very bad. Very bad. Very bad. So, um, without going into too much detail, because we're going to talk a lot about the First World War later, uh, 1914, the Ally versus the Central Powers. Russia and its allies in in Britain and uh, France, of course, and eventually the United States against Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then eventually their allies, the Ottoman Turks. Uh, The attack on Russia, the, the provocation for the war... Uh, the bringing in of Turkey against the Russians, longtime adversaries, not too long before, was, of course, the Crimea War. No surprise. Again, Crimea comes into this episode in some form or another, um, which had sealed some very severe bad, bad blood between the Ottoman Turks and Russia. And it also captured a lot of Russian territory. Uh, not a lot, but enough. Uh, and this was going to be trying to to prevent the ottomans from taking any more than they already had uh but the ottoman empire at this point was collapsing and crumbling and it needed a victory it needed something so it allied itself with germany in an attempt to be able to actually push into russia and, and hold on to territory maybe even take more and maybe sure itself up for however many more years it could last uh and so britain not wanting to see this happen uh decided that they would uh, coordinate and lead an attack jointly with the French and other allies, including Australia and New Zealand, uh, in an attempt to take the, uh, the Strait of Dardanelles and sail right up to Istanbul itself, bombard Istanbul and force the Ottomans out of the war. Whoever thought this was going to work was an idiot, including Winston Churchill, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty at this time, in charge of Britain's extensive navy. Uh, and he had under his command 18 British and French warships, all they could spare at the time, many of them outdated. And even though there had been so many people, so many intelligence agents who had warned against trying to to do anything like this, uh, they were completely ignored by the, the leadership in England at the time. And the decision was to go forward with this plan. And they believed that they could do it purely with naval force. They didn't think they were going to have to rely on a ground battle because they thought they could go in with their ships, surprise the Turks, take out the fortresses and the the guns that were protecting the strait and be able to to move through successfully and right on to Istanbul. And the very first day that they they launched the attack, it was a total mess. Uh, Hmm. The report had been that the area had been swept already for mines and there was nothing to be encountered. That was false. Uh, the report was that the Turks were so demoralized that their country was coming to an end that they would not fight. When, when they saw the British and the French coming, they would immediately flee. That was not the case. And they believed that they would be able to attack very effectively uh, the Turk guns. And that wasn't the case, because the powder from their explosions, from their guns, was in such great quantities that uh, it blocked an effective view of the shore. 
making it very difficult to aim the weapons, and many times they weren't even hitting the shore. So it was it was a bust. One third of the ships were lost. Hmm. Many of them were sank or damaged uh, beyond repair by mines and forced to flee the battle with their tails in between their legs. And it was a huge embarrassment. It was now going to be the job of ground troops to secure this peninsula and to take the peninsula of Gallipoli so that they can go up into those highlands, knock out the guns, and be able to sail the remaining part of their fleet to Istanbul. Sounds easy, right? Oh, they thought it would be a piece of cake. Okay, minor problem. We'll fix it. Uh, who they, they put in, probably the greatest number in terms of foot soldiers on the ground, were new regiments from New Zealand and Australia. Uh, folks who had really not seen any kind of battle. This was their first major engagement. Uh, for some of them, it was their first battle at all. Uh, they were known as the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, or ANZAC. And these, uh, these troops, supported by French and British troops, would attack the peninsula. The French and British would attack from the south, and it was up to the Australians and New Zealanders to attack the beachheads on the west. So they were attacking in a kind of pincer movement, all going inland to take out those guns. And they thought it would be a piece of cake, as they had assumed everything else was going to be. Uh, the Germans, however, had sent one of their top commanders uh, over Otto Lehmann von Sanders, not to be confused with the famous von Sanders of Colonel Sanders, the <laughs> chicken. Uh, that, that's, that's a lie. They weren't related uh, that I know of. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Plus, the, Sanders wasn't even really a colonel. Exactly. And this guy was a real general. So, yeah. huh. Yeah. throws that theory right out the window uh, it is actually uh since we've mentioned kentucky a couple times at this point <laughs> uh, it actually it is uh a cultural honor in kentucky to be, be named a colonel in the state militia oh so well there you go sanders was a colonel in the state militia oh there you have it it's actually one, one, history. one of my ex-bosses was a kentucky colonel so oh, interesting yeah, yeah. anyway sorry. thank you brian um, yes, not a Kentucky colonel, but rather a general. Uh, and uh, he had overall command of the region, but it was the actual Turkish commanders themselves who were highly skilled, very much aware of their surroundings, knew their homeland, knew how to defend it, knew how to rally their troops. And uh, the British totally underestimated the, the defiance the Turks would give them. And they would not allow a single inch of Turkish land to be taken uh, without considerable loss. And it is really quite incredible. And I don't want to give a play-by-play of every month of the war, of the battle, I should say. Instead, I just want to read a few excerpts, if I may, from some of the actual letters of some of the soldiers who were on the battlefield. Because I think if you have that unique opportunity to be able to tell the words themselves from the people themselves, you should take that opportunity. Go for it. So the, the, the invasion took place on the 25th of April, 1915. Dead of night, about 3 a.m., many of these soldiers were woken up out of their bunks and put into boats and sent to that beachhead. Uh, An unknown soldier from the 3rd Brigade writes, We are now within a mile of the shore, and the din has increased. The whole side of the mountains seem to be sending forth thongs of flames and bullets fiery rain upon us. The water is churned up from the rifle fire, machine guns, maxims, shrapnel, and common shells. Seven of the boys in our boat are killed and God knows how many others. Nearly 10,000 soldiers on both sides died within the first 10 days of the battle. Wow. Uh, it was it was fierce. Uh, another anonymous soldier writes about the landing. Our boat's bottom scratches the rocky shore. We wade ashore with the feelings that we are last ones to f- set foot on Turkish soil. Silent forms lay scattered on the beach everywhere. 
some gone to their last resting place, others writhing in their last agonies, others their lifeblood fast oozing out. Wow. So this was pretty intense. So those first two weeks, those first few days of May, um, preceding the, those first 10 days on, on the beach were really difficult. Uh, they were building and digging in trenches. Uh, they were being stopped at every opportunity they can, this being, of course, the, the allies who were moving in, and the, the Turks were doing the same. And I, I think, again, it's best said that, uh, by, by the people themselves who were living here, because the only time that they stopped fighting was when they agreed to just bury their dead. Uh, and the soldier writes, uh, this is William Dexter, The armistice began for the purpose of burying the dead. The smell is something awful. Some of the bodies have been laying in the heat of the sun for four weeks, and of course, all are unrecognizable. It is only by identification discs on the corpses are known, so the early dog tags. Uh, the ground was simply covered with dead. Between the trenches, an estimated 12,000 Turks killed had been made. Wow. Amongst this awful mass of dead Turks were some of our boys who had been killed on the first and second days, fighting and laid there since, their bodies horrible to look at, being black and swelled up, stenching out of the clothing, and in many cases, they were touched, falling to pieces. Wow. So, obviously, there's some really terrible things that are going on here on, on both sides. An enormous amount of Turks were being thrown in here to defend this area. They were not going to let anyone take over their homeland. They were going to defend it. Uh, and their casualties at the end of all of this ended up matching, if not exceeding, many of the estimates for the, for the Allies. Uh, August saw some really severe pushes and some really useless battles, including the Battle of the Neck. This soldier writes about it. Uh, this is Sergeant Cliff Pinnock. 150 men of the 800th Light Horsemen jumped out of the trench, but were all mown down within 30 seconds, sinking to the ground as though their limbs suddenly became string. They were waiting, ready for us, simply to give us a solid wall of lead. And this is typical of the type of battles that would go on. On both sides, so many would fall. Uh, after one push after the other, as, as is so common with trench warfare. And also common with trench warfare, as we saw not just in Europe, but also here at Gallipoli, uh, is the raging dysentery. The fact that people were being forced to go to the bathroom, to the latrine, 10, 12, 14 times a day. Um, they had no adequate toilet paper. They had nothing. So they were spreading dysentery all around them. Some of them were actually falling into the latrine and drowning. In their mm. own excrements. That's terrible. It's horrible. And uh, this is, a again, an unknown individual war diary of the 12th Infantry Brigade. The general health is bad, as with many as 50% of the men unfit for duty. And unless relieved, there will be, to a certainty, a severe epidemic of pneumonia, dysentery, fever, as the resisting power to disease is practically nil. Um, in some cases, the trenches were so close, only about 10 meters away, that... Uh, by November, people were so tired of this fighting that uh, many times they just started talking to each other from across the trenches, both Turkish and, and British, Australian, French soldiers. This, uh, this is from Lieutenant T.E. Cozen. Extraordinarily friendly exchanges between the Turks and our fellows this morning. Some of our chaps ran right over to the enemy trenches and exchanged bully, jam, and cigarettes, etc., the whole business was wonderful and proves how madly unnecessary this part of the war is. 
And there was a real admiration for the Turks. They were seen as gentlemen, particularly in those first few weeks of the war when they came out to collect their dead. They saw the admiration that they had for not just their fallen comrades, but even for the ones who had killed them, for their enemy. There was a real respect between these two, and it made for a very different kind of war, uh, an even more horrible war, because you weren't just killing an enemy that you thought was a bloodthirsty murderer. You were killing someone you respected. And uh, I can only imagine the kind of psychological warfare that played on, on everyone. Yeah. My final letter kind of sums up how, by December, everything was coming to a close. And this is from Private John Henry Turnbull. The first fall of snow fell tonight. We spent a cold, wet, and miserable night. The ground was frozen. In our support trenches, we have no overhead cover. Our clothes and blankets wet through. The snow is a beautiful sight, no doubt. We are past admiring scenery just now. We are on half rations, biscuits, and cheese. How we hate the sight of those biscuits. Yeah. And just a short time later, the decision was to pull out. That was after half a million people had been uh, lost as casualties. Not necessarily dead, but wounded, maimed, injured. Wow. Many of them would continue to fight and die elsewhere. Others would be sent home. And still 100,000 more on both sides would be sent home permanently in boxes. And for some folks, it would be many, many years before those remains would be returned back to England or Australia or New Zealand. And to this point now, the 25th of April is as Aztec Day uh, and is commemorated every year uh, in both New Zealand and Australia. Uh, And this is a horrible, horrible tragedy something that was so very unnecessary, such a horribly planned invasion with no real uh, regard for the human life that was being sent there. Yeah. What I find really, though, and kind of inspiring about this is that, like you said, there was so much mutual respect from both sides. And usually when you hear about the sides of that, of of war, you know, you, the, the sense of the other side being the enemy perpetuates. Yeah. There are a lot of World War II vets that for many years uh carried a, a vicious prejudice against the japanese sure you know or japanese any japanese american even though they had there was no reason to do so because it's not like that person was the one who invaded the united states right yeah and yet we don't see that here we see that these were people who were fighting a war, they were following orders for a war they really didn't even want to be i mean they wanted to fight the war but they didn't necessarily want to deal with this one part of the war so i just find that really really interesting I have one letter, one more I want to read. Uh, And this is from a young man named uh, Munir. I got up from my earth bedstead. I'm approaching the edge of the hole and looking out of it now. The earth is wet because of the fog and humidity. Sweet grass is flowing down the Emerald Creek. The sun is rising. The British are late today. I don't hear any sounds of weapons as we used to. Now I'm going down and writing the letter here on the earth. My friend is busy with signaling some papers. I need sleep so much right now. I didn't sleep last night because of the fires of heavy cannons. My commander is calling me. I'll continue writing later. Now I'm back. But I can't continue my letter because the British started to fire. It's so harsh. Wow. Today's fighting is different. It's like hell here. I wish I had some sleep. The sound of the heavy bolts is so loud that your ears can't resist. Bye, my brother. While I was going to see the commander, I picked up two tulips. I'm including including them in this letter as a souvenir of Gallipoli. I hope we will see each other again. So 
that letter finishes there and it is at its destination three weeks later but there is a small note that accompanies it by a man by the name of Nihat. Sir, I am friend of Munir. He is dead. I was wounded and now I'm in the hospital. I'm sending this letter that he could have because he wrote this a day before he became a martyr. And, you know, I wanted to read this because we have so many letters that come from the Allies' side and we forget about the other side sometimes. And I think you put it very eloquently before, so I don't need to really continue with that. But um, it was worth reading some of the suffering and some of the pain uh, that was felt by the Turks as well. Well, uh, that is a hard act to follow. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. But, but let's close up with uh, a pretty famous ancient battle, one that has recently been adapted into a film. Yeah, not or, too far away from this fight, in fact, just a little further north. Exactly. And we're talking about the Battle of Thermopylae. One of the most famous in history. Uh, or for those who do not remember, uh, this inspired the film 300. And the which, graphic novel. And the graphic novel by, <laughs> by Frank Miller, yes. This and the film by is Neuronomy! Yeah. So let's, um, let's, let's, for those who haven't seen the film, which <laughs> I, I'm sure there are, not, there are not many of you, let's do the Reader's Digest version of what happened. Sure. So you've got King Xerxes, who is the king of Persia, uh, and as most ancient kings we have found, when they have amassed the amount of land, they get greedy and they want more. Oh, yeah. So uh, he set his sights on conquering Greece. And uh, he had tried doing it through diplomacy. He tried to tap that he had this very large and powerful army, which was true. He had amassed quite a large army, about 150,000 men, which for ancient times was astounding in size. And then keep in mind, this is about the year 480 BCE. So he writes a letter to Leonidas saying, hey who, of course, is the king of, of the city-state of Sparta at this point, he says, let us conquer you. You will all be treated as free citizens. We'll let you move to another, to a safer, better spot than you have right now. Just give us your land, yeah, basically. Great, great view, built-in Wi-Fi. You're going to love it. Exactly. To which Leonidas politely declined. Uh, <laughs> to which Xerxes sent yet another uh, ambassador who now more firmly but still politely asked for him to lay down their arms, uh, to which Leonidas sent back, come and get them. <laughs> <laughs> so history lesson number one, learn about who you're going to be conquering. Mm -hmm. uh, Sparta, yeah, one of the things that the Frank Miller novel and the Zack Snyder film got correct, and one of the few things that got correct, <laughs> uh, was that Sparta was, in fact, a city-state of warriors. These were men who were literally trained to be warriors from the moment they could walk. Yeah. You do not tell the king of a city-state of trained soldiers to lay down your arms. <laughs> you just don't do that. Yeah. When your children are equipped with uh, small wooden swords for teething, rather sure. than a traditional teething ring, uh, you, you might want to consider yes. uh, not invading. And to be fair, I am, I am skipping the details here quite a bit. There was involved, he did go to the Oracle of Delphi, it seems to be a common theme in ancient Greek literature, because Oedipus did the same thing. Didn't turn out well for him, though. So, the, the, basically, the rest of the Greek city-states aren't convinced that there is an actual invasion on their hands. So, a small army is amassed, um, of which there are 300 hundred Spartans. But keep in mind, the movie 300 makes it look like that these are pretty much, that's, that's all there is. No, that's not all there is. There were 300 Spartans. That is the famously true element of it. But there was almost 6,000 uh, soldiers from various parts of Greece. There were Corinthians, there were Thebans, there were Thespians, not actors, mind you, 
but from the actual city-state of Thespiae, um, or Thespiae. I don't know how it's pronounced, but nevertheless, yes, the city, not, not the profession. So they had two huge tactical advantages working for them, and which is why the, the Persians were not able to get in to Greece. Uh, you had pretty much two paths, two roads that got you into the country. The reason why they call Thermopylae Thermopylae, it literally in, in early Greek means the hot gate. You've got these two hills that create a small walkway uh, the, you know, they trail off into the small walkway, which is the only way in to Greece from the beach. It's a bottleneck. It's a bottleneck, exactly. So it doesn't matter how large your army is. It's like trying to crawl up the under the thin side of a funnel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's really just not possible. So if you firmly mount your men in that bottleneck, you aren't getting through. It's like putting a cork in the bottom of that funnel. Just It's just not going to happen. And here's why it's not going to happen. So for one, the Persians had a lot of people. But again, we've already talked about that. You've already put the plug in there. And yes, the Persians had archers. They had the famous immortals, right? They're elite soldiers. That's all good. But <laughs> the Spartans had s- superior war technology. Yeah. First of all, they had war tactics, the phalanx, the famous phalanx, the, their method of flanking their shields in a way that made them behave like one massive shield, right? So, which was adopted by the Romans, of course. Bronze shields, for that matter. Bronze shield, which was much stronger than any of the technology that the the Persians were using. And let's not forget, the helmets they were using were also bronze. Yeah, deflecting arrows. Right? Absolutely. And uh, this is, of course, the famous Mohawked-looking Spartan helmets. That is, in fact, what inspired the Romans to adopt the same same look. Romans drew so much inspiration from from the Spartans, particularly in their warfare. So uh, also longer spears and longer spears as well. Yeah. So they they had and people who knew how to use them really freaking well. So <laughs> so I'm just saying it makes it it makes that very difficult for an army of 150,000 people to. Of course, even though of course they didn't weren't all watched all at once, but to to break through. But we're talking about a Persian army that some estimates are in the hundreds of thousands, 100, 200,000. Correct. 000. According to no, what we know from the Greek side is from the from the Greek historian Herodotus. He claimed that there was two and a half million soldiers. We know now by, by modern estimates that that just was not possible. Yeah, whenever I read anything by Herodotus, I, I keep a, an enormous grain of salt right nearby. And I use it much <laughs> like a salt lick, but uh, I have it. It's my Herodotus grain is what I call it. Okay. And uh, yeah. That, shocked that you actually have that but okay good to know really are you really that shocked yeah why is this a huge blunder so as is also portrayed in the film this resident of sparta named aphaetes betrays information to the persians that there's another path into greece basically a rear entrance when the spartans learn of this they decide to disperse all the other soldiers to that road to protect that and these 300 soldiers pretty much hold off the the Persian army, which is an amazing feat. But again, 300 trained soldiers. So, you know. 300 uh, trained Spartans. 300 trained Spartans. Yeah. Uh, of course, they were all decimated. That part is also true. So I guess it depends on which side you're looking at. Because if you are Persian, you see it as a failure that the weren't able to hold out, that the Greeks did not take it as seriously as they should have. They didn't send enough troops that they needed to continue to support it. At least at first, keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because (laughs) even though 
this was eventually a failure. It decimated so much of the Persian army and demoralized them and caused them to be held up and, and be vulnerable to the sea as well, that uh, the later flux influx of that invasion would also end up becoming a failure. Yeah. I think the one thing we can do to wrap this up for the whole evening is what you've learned from any of these blunders is there's always a critical underestimation yeah. of your circumstances that always ends up leading to failure. First of all, invading is kind of passe at this point anyway. <laughs> I mean, it really is. We've got, we've, we're now in a new age of warfare where the invasion means my robot shoots down your robot, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> basically, right? That's what it comes down to. Or my robot build blew up your building. Um, so it's, it doesn't have to be about putting in an armada. It doesn't have to be about putting in land troops. Uh, Not entirely. Anymore. There's certainly that element that's still there. Sure, But sure. it's definitely shifting. Absolutely. That being said, if for some reason someone out there is looking to to launch a military invasion, maybe maybe one for argument's sake for a history class, you got to take a look at all factors, right? Yeah. And trust your intelligence. Trust your intelligence. Listen to what people are telling you. And for God's sakes, trust your damn weatherman. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be like the Spanish. <laughs> uh, if only they had barometers. If only they had barometers. Agreed. This was great. This was the late 16th century. They had not advanced their knowledge of natural science to that point yet. So uh, this has been a fun topic to explore and probably one we'll have to revisit at some point or another well each of these could be an episode in, in oh, their own easily right. we could have talked about napoleon's failed attempt to take russia oh yeah and uh, hitler who did the same thing sure you know 100 years later if anyone's interested uh, eddie izzard almost 100 years later does a, a brilliant bit <laughs> about uh but basically about empires trying to steal countries mm-hmm. you know and he of course talks about britain stealing we stole countries with the cunning use of flags <laughs> <laughs> You know, and how he's how Indian uh, India was claimed for Britain. Um, you can Google it or look it up on YouTube. It is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> is amazing. Uh, and of course, when we get to posting the show notes, uh, whenever that will be, uh, we will we will post the resources that we used, uh, as well as some other ones you can do for your additional learning. If you do want to get on a resource right away, if you don't want to wait for those show notes, head over to anzacwebsites.com. Uh, they have a, a section of letters from soldiers of Gallipoli. And like we've said before, so many history podcasts overlook this element, that human element. And I think it's so important that we remember that. And we remember the people who were involved. And these modern wars, as terrible as they are, do give us that opportunity to learn from them in such a unique way. Uh, and by no means is the Battle of Gallipoli exclusive to this. There are many societies out there who have been dedicating... Uh, many, many years of work to recording and making available these stories from soldiers from all many different wars going back many, many years. So please check them out. Learn a little bit more about wars and maybe it'll help us avoid them in the future. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think one small podcast can make that big of a difference. But, you know, if we can just get one person to recognize the futility of it all you know i will say when i was studying karate which i, I unfortunately I've, I've fallen out of practice though i probably could afford to, to pick it back up again <laughs> uh, judging by my physical shape but um the one of the things that i thought was so fascinating about the okinawan mindset was you will learn the way of war so that you can maintain the way of peace yeah you know you learn violence so you can avoid violence learning about war is a good thing because well one you learn you do get better as a tactician but you also realize could this have been avoided in the first place, right? And we're now learning that diplomacy is a more powerful tool than military might. 
So, and I certainly hope it prevails in the situation with uh, Ukraine. Yeah, I agree. Last really thing we do. need is another war. Yeah. Um, well, folks, this has been a long episode, but we hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was worth every second of it. I think uh, this was a lot of fun. I agree. And, uh, of course, if you like what we do here at Nerdonomy, uh, you have our affiliates that you can support us with. You can also still give us a donation through um, our homepage. You go to the, the donate link at the top of the page on any page on our website. And we you always can, appreciate it. You can. Uh, no amount is too small. No amount is too big <laughs> either. And uh, also, please... You know, what do you think is the worst invasion in history? We will have Dave post a question to follow that up for you next week. Or rather this week when you hear this <laughs> when episode. You hear it, yep. <laughs> and also follow us. Follow the conversation. You can follow us on our personal Twitter accounts in addition to our Nerdonomy-based ones on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. Cool. And uh, until next time, stay nerdy. And tune in to us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. So do you think he's going to call back? I don't know. <sighs> you get it this time. Hello? No, this is not Giorgio's pizza. No, I don't want sausage on it. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Funny. Funny. Little Putin. Uh-huh. Funny. So it was him, huh? It was totally him. Jackass.